0: Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet... You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would in this time speak and that your spirit would work in us that we would hear. Give life and light to our hearts as it is already in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The next uh, year or so is going to be a supremely interesting time in American history as we go through another presidential debate. And I think this is our presidential election season. uh, And I suspect this one's going to look a little bit different than kind of anything we've seen thus far in my life, at least. It's going to be uh, interesting. Uh, One of the things that is going to be so intriguing to me and it happens, I guess, every political season, but particularly in this one, it's going to be interesting to see is how, how suddenly we begin to hear the language over and over and over again of, you know, we're all about liberty, we're all about freedom, we're America, right? I, I love that. The thing that does make me chuckle, though, is how often that kind of language is used with no definition, I mean, we're, we're we're liberty, ah, we're freedom. And, and I sometimes wish that like in the debates, they would just be a little bit more kind of candid. And maybe that sometimes the, the candidates would be a little bit more honest and just direct in their responses. Yeah. What are we liberated to? You're liberated to give all of your money to the government. Well, that's not a freedom I particularly like. I don't really want to go that route. I I think I'll pass on that. Thank you. I prefer my money to be in my pocket, not in the government's pocket. Or perhaps they could give some other kind of silly answer, but it's interesting to think about so much of that conversation is a conversation about what I'm being freed from and what I'm being liberated to. I I personally have never really been freed from, uh, you know, the evil government and constraints of England. That that happened a couple of years prior to my birth, right? I'm a little bit younger than the Revolutionary War. So when we talk about liberty and freedom and all of those things now, what what am I being freed from? What am I being liberated to? It's interesting, in fact, actually, if you want to go back and just pay more attention in the future think about the whole conversation about abortion that's the entire conversation what am i being freed from what am i being liberated to is liberty mean that i get to do whatever i want however i want to whom i want i wish they would ask candidates those kinds of questions (laughs) you know what standard do you use to draw the line as to what's acceptable because most time we'll say something like well as long as it doesn't hurt somebody really Is that really the answer? It's interesting though too because that's the kind of thing that gets thrown around in the church as well when we start talking about Christian liberty and Christian freedom. Well, I have Christian liberty, which growing up in the church and having gone to a Christian college that was almost immediately followed with, therefore I can use foul language. That is almost always the argument, that's how it was made. Therefore, I can do such and such. I can go to Vancouver on spring break and smoke weed. That's what I can do because I have Christian liberty. The church in Pergamum and the letter to her particularly is going to kind of hone in on that question of what does Christian liberty mean? What are we freed from? What are we liberated to? Uh, I didn't get that when I read it the first time. Well, no, this one's, out of all the letters we've hit so far, this one's probably the most technical in terms of how prophecy works. It's extremely complicated, and honestly, there's a large part of this that we just don't have the data to. Uh, John wrote it to a specific uh, reading audience, and we don't have all of the data that they have. What we do know is important, though, that Pergamum is a very important city. It's a little bit to the north of uh, Smyrna, and it was famous for a number of things. One, it was famous for its temples. It had temples everywhere. It had uh, temples to Zeus Soter, which uh, the savior Zeus. It had a temple to Athena, uh, a temple to uh, Dionysus, and a temple to uh, Asclepius, Uh, I'm assuming I said that right. Backstory on how that works. In the top of the hill in Pergamum, you have the great temple to Athena. And just directly in front of it, you had the four-story tall statue of Zeus overlooking the city. It was impressive. One of those things that you kind of can't not notice. The giant four-story statue standing up on top of the mountain. Further, the temples to, or the temple to Asclepius, uh, was, he was the god of healing. He was uh, the god of medicine, um, the god of science, which is interesting because as his great uh, image, his sign, his little kind of symbol and picture, he was a serpent god. Ever wonder why the portrait of medicine today is the staff with the serpent coiled around it? Because of this guy. Asclepius, that's why the serpent for all of your men. You go to the pharmacy and it's got the little staff with the serpent coiled around it. It's because of him. So you have this great city filled with pagan gods. On top of that, Pergamum had one-upped the other cities in terms of their relationship with Rome. Whereas the others, you had had temples built to Rome Pergamum is the city that then takes it to a new level and kind of formally adopts emperor worship. So that when you stepped into Pergamum itself, the emperor himself was considered to be divine. This would have been a tough place for a Christian to live. I mean, this is not the kind of city that you would think, oh, everybody's kind of moral, oh, everybody's kind of, just tolerance everywhere. This would have been a hard place to live. False gods, obviously (laughs) everywhere. A government that's claiming your fealty, claiming your loyalty, claiming your identity. What on earth are we supposed to do with that? Well, it started verse 13, if we're going to jump into the middle of the letter, you, you get really what you would think is an opening statement of great encouragement from the Lord Jesus. I mean, if I were called to suffer dearly, I would love to have this statement said about me. I know where you dwell. I know. I, again, he's said this from the very beginning in these letters that he's not ignorant of the church. He's not far off, looking from far away, having no idea what's going on. He is the one who walks between the lampstands he's in and with and around the church knowing what's going on. I know where you live, church, and I know it is where Satan's throne is. Again, probably hinting at this point to the um, extreme idolatry that was here in Pergamum and that it had taken a very sinister turn. Not that all idolatry isn't sinister, but Pergamum had taken a particularly sinister turn. Because here the church has had to experience great difficulty, already great persecution, even to the point where uh, Antipasagai, we don't actually know who he is. We just know that he was martyred at this point, but died well. He was Christ's faithful witness, and the church has stayed strong. The church has remained holding fast to the name of Jesus. And you would think, man, I, I love that. Yay, right? Woo-hoo-hoo. You have intense persecution. You have people actually literally being martyred and the church clings to the name of Jesus. Praise God. And then verse 14, oh no. Oh no, that bad word that follows a compliment, but... But I have a few things against you. And this is where we kind of say maybe if standard English readers, the letter kind of goes off the rails largely because we don't know our Old Testament and largely because this is intended to be a bit more opaque than some of the other ones. This I have against you. There are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And we don't immediately jump to Numbers 22 through 25 because we don't have that memorized, though we probably should, as that is the story of Balaam. The story of Balaam, you should read it, Numbers 22 through 25, one of the more enjoyable portions of Scripture. It's almost comical as one man comes to this evil prophet in an attempt to get him to curse God's people, and every time he tries, the Lord won't let it happen. So it's this almost comedic reading where the man tries to curse Israel and everything he does to try to curse Israel God's like no <laughs> no no it's going to be a blessing. And there's one great scene in it where as he's trying to curse Israel everything that comes out of his mouth is positive and blessing and the guy the king's like what are you doing blessing Israel and he's like I cannot do it it's God I can it's, it's a great interchange. Balaam, however, does stumble onto something. He ends up winning temporarily in the end because he realizes that the best way to go after the people of God is not through a direct assault where he begins to curse them and to bring evils upon them. The best way to get the people of God is to have them self-destruct. Don't need the devil to do it. They'll do a good enough job themselves. So instead of cursing them, he then helps construct circumstances where they will be confronted with very easy, very sneaky, very gradual moral compromise. where they'll still claim the name of God, they'll still claim to be his people, but as they march down the road, they continue to increase in immorality. It highlights here just a couple of the ways he did that. He put up a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. If you go back to Numbers, you actually find he did one thing first that was far more effective. He brought in pagan wives. Because once the sons of Israel intermarry and they have a pagan wife in the home, it's only a matter of time. And as they get the pagan wife in the home and listen to her whispering and listen to her leading them astray, what follows is sexual immorality. What follows is when it says food offered to idols, this is a little bit complicated because we know 1 Corinthians and other places, the food offered to idols isn't inherently bad, the food itself. What he's hinting at here is that it's not just they ate that food, but they began to enjoy the idols themselves. They worshipped with their wives. Now interesting, what does Jesus just praise the church of Pergamum for? He's praised them that though they live in a terrible situation, though they live in a culture that is out to get them, though they live with false gods all around them, and though they continue to claim the name of Jesus, there are some in their midst that are compromising. And they're compromising their purity. Now, I, I find it interesting how these, these seven letters to the churches are really, they're marvelous because they, they help us kind of prioritize uh, what Jesus prioritizes. It lets us see what's important to him. When you deal with a church like this and you're only going to take a paragraph to talk to him, you don't talk about the minor stuff. You don't say, guys, you need to improve your email chain. It stinks. That could have been right, but you you deal with the biggies. You have Jesus addressing with, you know, your first church, Ephesus, you've lost your first love. That is a big deal. That that is not insignificant. Church in Smyrna, you have them suffering and getting ready to get much, much worse in their difficulty. And so he comes with the fullness of encouragement, giving them the theological hug, saying, you're going to make it, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. But when we get to the church of Pergamum, he says, guys, the problem is that you confess Christ with your mouth. And yet you let impurity happen with your hands. You confess Christ with your mouth, but your hands and your hearts are filled with compromise. So that you have mixed worship of God and of the gods, lowercase g, idols. You have those that are practicing sexual immorality. In fact, even worse, verse 15, you have some that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we actually don't know what it is. It's not defined for us. We have it referenced in reference to Ephesus. We have it referenced here about a couple of other places in the scriptures. But we really ultimately don't know what it is. And I personally, I don't think that that's extremely important to that fact. I love the fact that what it is is highlighted is that in some sense you get the impression that this is the theological justification for the practice that's already happening. You've followed after Balaam, you've had this compromise in your purity, you've had this compromise in your practice, and shockingly, these same people have adopted this false theology that justifies that evil action. I'd love to pretend that this is not something that is extremely important for the American church today. And it goes back to that opening illustration, that opening question for Christians. What have we been freed from and what have we been liberated to? And again, I've, I've been in the church since I was virtually born and I've lived with a lot of various covenant children I watched, walk this path. To say, well, I have Christian liberty. I have my sins forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I can sin more so that grace will abound. The more I sin, the more it shows how much I can be forgiven. And you're like, friend, you need to go read Romans. I think he addresses that specific question. Well, I'm forgiven. It means that I can do some of these edgier things and it not be terrible. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, but only such a word as is useful for the edification of those around you according to the needs of the moment. That's pretty clear. Well, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, I can do X, whatever that is. I love... What Jesus is saying here because it explains our experience so well in the American church today where we're watching a church that I would say by and large is doing a marvelous job of sticking to the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus and holding it fast. But my goodness, have we not followed the same path? where we have let impurity creep in. We have let impurity sneak into our hearts and into our minds. And then, funny enough, we're able to rationalize it. Never underestimate the Christian's ability to rationalize evil. Never, ever, ever underestimate that ability, particularly for yourself. That's how you end up in bad situations. But to think about, again, how much Christians complain about the current culture, complain about uh, the impurity of the current culture, complain about the perversion of the current culture. And it's like, well, if we just stopped spending our money on those things, they would dry up and disappear. We complain about certain types of internet business or entertainment. It's like, well, if we stopped doing that, it wouldn't be there. We complain about certain types of movies or certain types of books. It's like if Christians would just stop reading them, they would go out of business right now. Now, That's easy for us to go, well, yeah, that's them out there. That's that's the Christians out there. Those are the bad Christians. (laughs) I love that. That is immediately where my heart goes, right? Oh, that's them. Those are the weak, awful Christians. Those are the terrible ones. Do we not do the same thing? Have those quiet little compromises, those secret little sins where we let impurity into our lives and into our hearts and we hold it close. I mean, it's not a sin if no one knows, right? I mean, it can't be that bad if only I know about it. It's not impacting anybody, it doesn't hurt anyone else. Right? It doesn't hurt you, it doesn't hurt me, it doesn't hurt anybody else. I think it's interesting as well here that when you think again about Jesus and his priorities, you think, well, you know, I mean, we're a church that stands on the gospel. That's the only thing that matters. It's only about you can have your sins forgiven in Jesus. And here Jesus is saying, look, you've got my name and you've got that part right. You missed the consequences of it. Being forgiven by Christ is not the end of the story. It's not just the cross and then conversion, regeneration. You're, oh, I'm good, I'm finished, that's it. we're freed from sin to holiness. From evil to righteousness. From impurity to purity. I fear that when it comes time for the history books to be written about the era of the church that I have lived in. This is our letter. I, I mean, the church, Smyrna, I mean, I think all of these are certainly applicable and we're working hard to make sure they do apply. This is our letter. I mean, the, the persecution's not that serious yet where we're watching people be murdered here. I mean, it's happening in other places all over the world. Which actually, I guess, more than anything, speaks to our weakness. <laughs> At it actually took people being martyred in front of them for them to start this sort of compromise. For us, it's like they hurt my feelings. I'll compromise. Let me go. I'll walk down that path willingly. So what do we do? I mean, if we're going to be honest, well, I would say first and foremost, I would highly encourage you to be brutally honest with yourself. To be brutally honest with yourself and your own habits. It is amazing to me how often Christians will say things like, I'm not a liar. I mean, I lie. I mean, maybe even a lot. Maybe even most of the time, but I'm not a liar. I'm like, well, are you? <sighs> okay. But to be honest about who we are and our sin, to be honest about our struggles, and to be honest about the impurity that we do cling to. To be honest about the impurity that we don't want to let go. To be honest about the impurity on the things that we don't like, but we still continue to consume. Because if we're not honest about who we are, not recognizing that this is describing our situation, uh, the, the remedy that Christ provides, the medicine that Christ provides makes no sense. Verse 16, therefore repent. Well, if honestly, if you're, you're in denial about your impurity, a call to repentance makes no sense. Because you don't think you have anything to repent for. You can't take the medicine if you don't think you have the illness of sin that's being talked about. Therefore, repent, turn from this, and turn not simply to greater purity. Interestingly, that's not the solution that Jesus presents. He doesn't say turn from these acts of evil and impurity toward newness of behavior. He he actually gives a better transition. He says, turn from these acts of impurity to me. Keeps it totally out of the realm of moralism. You turn to me. And he identifies himself in so many ways here in this passage that pertain to this. First, if you looked at verse 12, again, remembering each of these letters, he begins with an address of himself that came from chapter 1, and it is the address, the title, that helps us understand who he is for that church. The words of him who has the sharp, the two-edged, the sword, all of them highlighting the fullness of the weapon in his hand. Here comes the word of God. I love how one of the keys to combating impurity, one of the keys to combating this sort of sin, and certainly to combating the rationalization is to be aggressively submissive to the Word of God. Aggressively submissive to the Word of God. To be relentless in attempting to understand it, to apply it to our lives, and to subject ourselves beneath it. Aggressively submissive. It's two terms you don't tend to think of together, but that's what Christians are called to be to the Word of God. Aggressively submissive submissive what new areas of my life can I bring into subjection to the word of God because God's word is true and noble and lovely and pure and I want to be as well Christ is the word verse 16 therefore repent well he identifies another aspect of his character one that maybe isn't quite as exciting to many of us If you don't repent, portion of the church that's practicing these acts of evil, I will come to you and I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. Christ is judge. Identifying first, he's Christ the word. Second, he's Christ the judge. He will return. And all the deeds done in darkness or the darkness of our hearts will be exposed to the light. It's interesting, again, how that changes your perspective on sin. I mean, to think about the next time that you know you're intentionally going to do evil. I love thinking about just how many angels there might be in the room that are watching. You ever thought about that? How many angels you owe an apology to? (laughs) I'm so sorry you had to watch that. I'm so sorry. That's not what God's people are called to do. And yet you, his holy messenger, his holy servant, one who's created to be in the very throne room of God had to see that. I'm so sorry. All of those deeds done in darkness will be exposed and those that do not know him, those compromisers that are inside the church, he will destroy. And that, that's where it gets really hard, doesn't it? Where the scriptures all throughout, particularly the New Testament, all throughout the early church there is constantly talked about the category of those that profess the name of Jesus but do not know him and consistently have their life marked by impurity. Jesus addresses it all throughout his ministry, parable of the wheat and the tares, other things. Almost all of the pastoral epistles have some aspect of dealing with this category of person. I mean, the previous book of the Bible, in fact, the previous four books of the Bible, the previous book of the Bible is so abundantly clear. We have Jude saying, look, I wanted to write you a happy letter to encourage you. The problem is there are false people who have crept into the church and are corrupting the church by uh, emphasizing the pleasures of the flesh and you're falling for it. And the thing that will happen to them is judgment after judgment after judgment. You think, whew, those are both bad. Well, yeah, that, that is true. Both of those aspects of Christ's character here are hard for us to deal with. Particularly in an American church, we, only think, we like to think about God as always being happy and warm and fuzzy. And here Christ is... In the most holy fashion, of stern, righteously demanding. He doesn't stop with that, though, and I, I appreciate this. But to those who find victory, he offers a promise. And an encouragement and who these are tough. This is why we read Joshua five to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, this is intriguing because in the Old Testament, manna was a physical entity that was given to a physical substance that was given to God's people to sustain them. And I think Jesus is hinting at here like, look, that physical thing was done. But something new and greater and richer and fuller spiritually takes place where God nourishes His people on Himself. It's the counterbalance to the negative of the repent and be transformed or God will judge you. But at the same time, if you repent and conform, God will bless you richly, first and foremost with Himself with that sustaining mercy from heaven wherein he feeds his people. Right? little hint at it. A little bit of a foreshadowing we're going to do in about six minutes. He feeds us Christ. And one other promise that's here, and this is the hardest thing we've found yet in the book. Being completely up front there's about eight different interpretations of this and conservative reformed biblical commentaries and none of them agree i will give him the one who endures a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it everybody gets hung up on the stone what's the stone mean why is he giving us a white stone I suspect that's actually not the point we're supposed to focus on. (laughs) The Lord gives us a stone. These people that endure, he gives a stone. But the key on the stone is what's written on it. It's a reminder of our new nature. Look, you used to be people of impurity. We haven't all thought the scripture, such were some of you. You were this way. You were marked by all sorts of impurity. Before you knew Christ, your life was a mess. It was a textbook in things that should not be done. There's one of the comedians that says, this is what the Ten Commandments were. It was a lesson of all the things you used to do that you shouldn't do. But now in Christ, you're a new person. You have a new name. You have a new identity. You have a new character. And we are to be reminded of it. So that it would function like a mirror to reflect to us, to remind us when we're discouraged. Look, this isn't who you are. It's intriguing how so much of the New Testament, when it talks about living a holy life, it's not go be a good person because you're supposed to. That's not how it says it. I mean, you are supposed to, but that's not what it says. It says go act according to your nature. Lions hunt gazelles, it's according to their nature. That's how they behave. Snakes bite, it's according to their nature. Don't be surprised when they do. Christians are holy. It's according to their nature. Don't be surprised when they are. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, I'm going to give you a name tag so that when you get discouraged, so that when you get weary or particularly when you're tempted to compromise, you can take your name tag off, flip it around and go, oh, yes, I'm a child of the king. I have a holy nature. This is not how I'm supposed to act. Not because I have to, but because this is beneath me. I've been given the character of Christ. I've been made a son or daughter of the Most High. I've been given newness of life. It's beneath me to go pursue sin and impurity in such a way. And I would end with this. What a generous person portrait of the Lord Jesus in this last verse. I I appreciate this part. I think maybe the most in terms of understanding his mercy. And this is probably an aspect of the gospel that we don't talk about nearly enough. That one thing that Jesus accomplishes on the cross is that he freely gives his people a new name. So that all the things that used to define you all of the evils that used to define you, all of the pleasures and passions that used to define you, he freely gives you a new one. Saul becomes Paul for all of us so that our natures change, so that our identities change, so that our very persons change. And oh, would it be that this week as we struggle with sin in a fallen world that excels at thinking of new forms of it, would it be that we would remember, I've been given a new name. I've been given a new character. I need to live that out because God is so gracious to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that King Jesus... Gives the holy manna, is the holy manna, and we get to feast on him even now. Would your word have a great harvest in us. For Christ's sake, amen.